0: normally being
1: a little extra might be a bit much but not when it comes to healthcare. that's why united healthcare's health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com
0: hello
2: and welcome to the final new statesman podcast of 2014. First up, I'll be reviewing the year in politics with George Eaton and new Kalian. Then I'll be talking to Ian Stedman and Philip Morn about what it's really like in North Korea and why they hate films about them so much. Finally, Caroline Crampton and I will be discussing the appointment of the first female bishop in the Church of England. It's time to look back at 2014, a year which our politics editor, George Eaton, who joins me now, said neither side won. We're also joined by our acting staggers editor, Anu Kalian. So, George, tell us first a bit about the, the premise of your column that you've written this week about the year in politics. Well,
3: it's that uh, British politics used to move to quite a predictable rit- rhythm, where if uh, the Tories were doing badly, then Labour would be doing well. If Labour was doing well, then the Tories would be doing badly. Um, it was a kind of game of zero-sum politics. Um, What we found out in 2014 was that both sides could lose. So UKIP won the European elections, becoming the first uh, party outside of the two main ones to win a national contest since 1906. You had the SNP who gave... Both who sent both parties into pure panic um, by coming so close to winning the Scottish referendum. You had UKIP win two by-elections. And then what's remarkable is just five months away from a general election, you've had both sides end, end the year with less support than they had at the start of it. And that's because uh, voters have defected in various directions. So you, the Tories haven't solved their UKIP problem. In fact, it's got worse uh, and Labour has shed votes to the SNP, and uh, increasingly the Greens, who have been the other. So the result is that the general election has become even more complex and even harder to predict than it was before, because there's so many multiple swings.
2: And Anush, if you had to name one thing as being the big trend of
1: 2014 in politics, what would you pick? Um, I'm not sure if it's a trend, but it's the biggest change that I've seen, which is so different to what it was like last year, is Um, That Labour seemed, at least on the surface, united, I think, this time last year. And it's completely disintegrated now because we always used to think of the Tories as being the party that was sort of tearing itself apart with their ideological splits and these difficult backbenchers. But now you could use that to describe the Labour Party, I think, which is, I think, for me, is the biggest change that I've seen, apart from, you know, obviously... UKIP and the Greens. Do
2: you think that's because this time last year Labour had that small but you know two to four point lead and they thought this is it we're going to hang hang in tight, there lads we're going to get a
1: ma- majority and that's fractured this year. Yeah, that's fractured and there's also a feeling among some of the backbenchers who are still feeling a little bit gloomy about um, the party's prospects that the leadership have been quite complacent, um, particularly about the idea of UKIP. They apparently, someone I spoke to told me that the MEPs, the Labour MEPs in the European Parliament have been warning Mil- Miliband for, for three years or so about Nigel Farage and the threat that UKIP um, could have for Labour's vote. So they think that the leadership has been dangerously slow on the uptake. And George, there's been, there's been two things haven't there in, in Labour
2: and UKIP. There's been the Marcus Roberts report for the Fabians, which was all about mm-hmm. the kind of revolt on the left, this idea, the parallel to the revolt on the right. And then there was the leak of Lucy Powell's document that was all about Labour's UKIP threat. So how seriously are they now taking that
3: well, I think they certainly are taking uh, UKIP seriously. They still say they are more of a problem for the Tories, which is true in the sense that they're still taking far more 2010 Tory voters than they are 2010 Labour voters. But it's important to remember that there weren't many voters, Labour voters in 2010. They only got 29% of the votes. So UKIP is fishing in a smaller pool there. But if you look further back and say, you know, who voted Labour in 2005, then UKIP have taken more. So in that sense, they're taking voters who should naturally be defecting to the main opposition party. And so the danger is they could either take seats directly off Labour or they'll split the anti-government vote in Tory marginals. Uh, the Tories will win some voters back for the UKIP and that will be enough for them to hang on as the largest party.
2: And that's been one of the big th- themes of this parliament is that there's been very little traffic between Labour and Tories, which you would normally yes. expect in terms of voters. Labour's surge, such as it is, is almost entirely driven, if I'm right, by those defecting 2010 Lib Demas. They just got a quarter of them on you know the day after they entered the coalition, basically, and have basically hung on. But let's talk a little bit about the Greens. So I wrote a column a couple of months ago saying you know why isn't there a UKIP of the left which was quite negative about the Greens because they have certain kind of institutional problems they have a very weird non-hierarchical system they haven't they've struggled to make a breakthrough in Brighton they've had troubles running the council there I now worry this is my sort of Michael Fish's you know (laughs) what hurricane what hurricane Um, but I still stand by the fact that I think they will find it hard to break through but you Anush, you were in Bristol West yes which is looking to be their their hottest ticket. What was the kind of atmosphere like there for them?
1: Um, Well, yeah, Bristol West is the constituency that they think that they can win other than Brighton Pavilion. And this is because they've got lots of councillors there, their vote share's gone up massively, and they've got this very interesting candidate called Darren Hall, who is an ex-civil servant, really not how you'd imagine a green candidate to be. He was wearing a suit. He was very professional, very slick. um, And he had uh, all sorts of campaigners with him, not just young people, not just students in, you know, flannel shirts. Um, So this is what was interesting in that the image of the Green Party was very different to what you'd imagine um, where they're doing well. And they actually um, acknowledge this. They say they're trying to get rid of the fluffy green image and to look like they're actually a party about um, sort of hard social issues. And George, how much of Labour opened up that space? Because
2: the Greens are the only full-bloodedly anti-austerity party, and how much has that been a result of Ed, uh, Ed Balls's really calculations that he needs to sign up things like the Charter of Budget Responsibility? Mm.
3: Yeah, I think that's been um, one of the issues that has really given them traction um, because they never they've never taken off uh, through their environmentalism. And at the start of the parliament, Labour's line was really uh, these cuts shouldn't be happening. We wouldn't be making them, were we, in government. They were in some ways the no cuts party uh, for a period because they thought the economy required stimulus. And now, of course, growth has returned and, and uh, the deficit hasn't gone down. And so Ed Balls' view is Labour has to be credible on this issue that voters, um, he's told me, expect chancellors to get the deficit down. Um, but that has opened up the space for the Greens. And so Labour on the one hand now is attacking the Conservatives, saying they want to take public spending back to the level it was in the 1930s, and we would have a more balanced approach. But uh, they're, they're not uh, they're not going all out against austerity. So the response is, say, well, your cuts are slightly nicer than the Tories, though it's sort of good cuts against bad cuts. Um, and that's obviously an opening for the Greens, because some on the left will feel Labour's compromised too much and conceded too much.
2: And then let's look at the, the nationalist parties. I'm going to I give an apology to our Welsh listeners, because we will come to Plaid Cymru in the new year, but I think that's something that we probably need to look at um, very specifically. So let's look first at the SNP. Um, Jim Murphy now installed as Scotland's uh, Labour leader. How is the the dynamic between him, George, and Nicola Sturgeon going to differ from the different one between Alex Hammond and Johan Lamont?
3: Mm. Well, one difference, of course, will be that Murphy isn't in the Scottish Parliament, and so it will be his new deputy, uh, Kezia Dugdale, who will be facing Sturgeon at First Minister's questions. So that's a disadvantage that um, Murphy has. But he's already made some interesting changes. So he's uh, announced plans to revise Clause 4 of the party's constitution to um, affirm that it is a patriotic party, that um, it it, it sets out policies for Scotland. And this is all designed to counter the view that you can only be uh, patriotic if you're a nationalist, and also to challenge... Uh, Duran Lamont's criticism that the Scottish Labour was just a branch office of Westminster. Um, He hasn't got long of course and... um You meet some Labour MPs who are actually fairly optimistic and say, we think we can squeeze the Nats as you get closer to the general election because you'll be able to say, do you want a Labour government or a Tory government? That's the choice. There are others who say that uh, the tectonic plates have really shifted in Scotland, that those old assumptions don't apply. The SNP certainly aren't going to get as many seats as as the crude uniform swing calculations suggest, but they could get upwards of 20 and in a close election, that's enough to, uh, certainly to stop Labour winning the majority and uh, perhaps to stop them um, be, even being the largest party.
2: And I'm going fi- to, finally, I'm going to end by putting you both on the spot and asking you to nominate either a, the, your biggest winner or your biggest loser from politics in Britain this year. Anoush, first. Um, Who's
1: your winner? Uh, well, not, I take... Maybe not the winner, but a winner. A winner. Um... Am I allowed to say Nigel Farage, or is that too obvious? You are allowed to say (laughs) Nigel Farage, but I will make (laughs) a face. Go on, let's talk talk Nigel Farage. Well, I think, yeah, I'd say Nigel Farage is undoubtedly the winner of this year in politics, at least in Westminster politics, because he's managed to get two MPs, um, and he's completely rattled the whole established order, so... He's really
2: stuffed all those people, I think myself included. He used to be like, Why don't the Greens get anything when they've got an MP and UKIP haven't even got an Mm, MP? Unfortunately, (laughs) now UKIP have got two MPs. And um, I know you said both parties lost, George, but any Mm. kind of individual people who've had a a tough year?
3: Who had a tough year? Well, I was going to say, I was going to also say Farage is the biggest winner for, for obvious reasons. And not just because of those by elections and the European elections, but his role as a one man pressure group in that all. Parties have stiffened their stances on immigration, EU migrants' benefits in in tacit tribute to him. Um, The biggest loser, I think, may have to be Clegg again. Um, You know, the Lib Dems did lose all but one of their MEPs in the European elections. Um, How
2: many votes did they get in the Rochester Institute by election Yes, but they they got the worst. Hundred or something? Yeah, they
3: got the lowest vote, 0.9% share. So the lowest vote um, for a major party in, in, in history and um, having been around 10 to 12 percent of the polls and some they're now as low as 6 percent and fighting with the greens for fifth place Uh, and given that some lib dem optimists thought they'd be ticking up by now as they claim some credit for the economic recovery and as voters um, move on from tuition fees and their betrayal in 2010 that is a pretty uh, disastrous state of affairs
2: but On the plus side, his Christmas card was quite good. Mm. So it's not all doom and gloom, (laughs) Nick, And on that note, um, happy Christmas to all our listeners and thank you very much to Anoush and George. There was big news in Movieland this week as Sony cancelled the release of a movie called The Interview, which chronicled a spoof attempt to kill Korean dictator Kim Jong-un after threats of terrorism. I'm joined by Ian Stedman, who, in a blinding bit of synchronicity, has been to North Korea. I have been
4: to North Korea, yes.
2: And also by Philip Morn, who is here to talk about the concept of film. So you have one thing to talk about each. (laughs) Um, But first of all... um, Ian, tell me a bit about how you came to come go to North Korea. How I came to go to North Korea. The place that no one's allowed to go. Well, this is the
4: thing you're, you're totally allowed to go there. I mean, not if you're American. Um, I am but I'm also British so I just didn't tell them I was American uh, they get a lot of tourism never every year
2: never to North Korea That's uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
4: Um, they have a huge tourism industry actually which is one of these things that there's, there are a huge number of misconceptions about North Korea, I mean yes it is a brutal horrific dictatorship but it's also really easy to get to, you just go to China and get on a train or a plane and you arrive in Pyongyang um, they've taken about 30,000 tourists a year two or three thousand of which are non-Chinese and most of those are European Um and it's it's just kind of you you go you pay a uh, officially government-sanctioned t- uh, tourism uh, company they'll take you in and it's basically like bus trip like coach trip on channel four but um instead of like a really uh, like nice sort of tour leader guy you have a bunch of like state agents who are your guides and they sort of lead you around monuments and go here's a monument to kim il-sung here's a monument to kim jong-un uh actually not jong-un because i went in 2009 and that was when kim, kim jong-il, jong-il was still on, yeah. alive so and... this is
2: my question is he was famously a massive film buff he was and he didn't get all that upset about team america world police which i think was he might well have done. quite this, this is this is
4: this one thing about North Korea is that they get angry about everything all the time, and it's um, that's why I mean a lot of people are saying that this hack of Sony is by North Korea because it bears some of the hallmarks of their um, cyber warfare capabilities. Like they have, along with like the Russians and the Americans and the Iranians, they are like the big cyber warfare country, um, but they get angry about everything, they probably did get angry about Team America. And whilst it does make sense that they might have retaliated against Sony, a Japanese company, for doing a film like The Interview, um, we still don't know 100% definite. I think today the US government said they'd think that the North Koreans Mm, did. So was a
2: report in Wired saying that it it looks like it's not going to be them, but the US government investigators
4: think that it is. There's there's an interesting divide on this where um, sort of like international... Uh, I don't know, conflict experts and stuff say it's probably North Korea, but people in the infosec community who deal with hackers day to day say it's probably not. So I have no idea. But it could be. It makes sense if it is. And the extent of it was hacked emails, right? It was well, it, no, It's basically everything that Sony uh, Entertainment, which is like not the video game bit. It's like the movie bit of it, mm. um, which I think is based in Hollywood. But it was just everything on their servers, which what has got most of the headlines is the emails because you get stuff like... Um... Channing Tatum writing in block. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, he not that exactly... I saw it. I don't sue me <laughs> um, <laughs> I, like,
2: I think when that, you raise an interesting point actually because I read a couple of pieces before I really actually knew what was going on I read the famous stuff about them saying Angelina Jolie is a bit of a nightmare to work mm. with and she wanted her on some film or other and then I kind of thought "Ooh, this is not actually I feel bad yeah. about this I feel like this is this is the kind of information version of the leaked naked pictures where everybody looked but They didn't want anyone to know that they'd looked.
4: Yes and no. I mean, the vast majority of the stuff is nowhere near as bad as the pictures, I'd argue. And I guess Aaron Sorkin is particularly, he wrote that. New York Times editorial mm-hmm. saying that it's it's like really bad you're invading my privacy there's no public interest well yet. he he had a nice but, line where he said that you know I mean Hollywood kind of uh, gossip magazines and so on um, they, they are they're kind of worse than the terrorists because they yeah. don't have a purpose <laughs> <laughs> are, yeah, yeah I think that might have been Aaron Sorkin um, <laughs> yeah but then he but, was also yeah. very
2: cross not long ago about the fact that someone wrote about the writers room where they were yeah. workshopping the newsroom because uh, a female staff was really unhappy about when a, a campus rape storyline that they'd done and he was very, that they violated the sacred trust of the writer's dream. The opposite side to that being, well, Aaron Sorkin's got an enormous amount of power and clout and therefore the
0: things are done the way that he wants them. And also
4: features in these emails. Yes, like he, his, his comments within.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
4: In the emails about why um, what is it? he said the best uh, actor Oscar winners, the women's category, they don't have to work as hard as the men. It's, there's always see
2: that's interesting because I instantly think oh yeah that is exactly squares with the Aaron Salkin that I see in Aaron Salkin's work but there is a Presumably, a generous interpretation of that, where he says that there are fewer good roles for women. Therefore, if you are lucky, and well, you yeah, get caught does. cast in the one amazing role that's like the powerful story of a woman who was, you know, eaten by a bear. Then you've yeah. got a lot of.
4: But he says those comments, yeah, as part of a larger discussion in an email chain about why there aren't better roles for women in Hollywood, and his explanation for it. I mean, I think there is a public interest angle to reporting that kind of thing because he is arguably part of the problem and his views on why there aren't better mm. roles for women in Hollywood. One of the reasons there yeah. aren't
2: better roles for women is because he keeps writing like la- lazy letters to his ex-girlfriends like yes. why are you so mean lady? He <laughs> keeps writing the same shit. I think the North
4: Koreans are switching off because this is getting off topic a little bit. <laughs>
2: I'm, well uh, I'm, I apologize to the North Koreans but the, one thing I did want to ask you Ian was you said you saw the, the hacking factories.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Not the hacking factories, but where they teach uh, computers. They're students. back in now, by yeah. the way, just the hacking <laughs> well, factories. <laughs> okay, the, the thing to understand about when you go as a tourist to North Korea is that um, they do show you a la- around a surprisingly large variety of places, but they always show you just like one bit of it. Like They take you down the nicest street of every town, and you can kind of see down the side streets that they haven't painted the, the other houses. They just show you the ones that are nice. And so... Uh, Like that applies to monuments and also to Kim Il-sung University, which is the major university in Pyongyang. Um, The first university in North Korea, I think, and still the biggest one. And it's like where all the the, the best and brightest go to. And they took us to like what was clearly the nice wing of the university. So we walked in. uh, They have a nice entrance hall. And they take you into these classrooms, which all had like brand new Dell computers, I think they were. Uh, I think they're all Dells or Hewlett packards I can't remember. Like they had one touchscreen computer that they were really proud of, which was really cute. And then um, one of the classrooms was specifically uh, information. It was an IT classroom. Like, that had posters up everywhere, like explaining how IP addresses work, how to uh, like how a DNS server works, and um, what the internet is, and all that kind of stuff. They had an interactive whiteboard, and it was exactly like standing in a classroom in the UK it was exactly the same but you go outside the classroom and you like I looked down the corridor and it was like the corridor started looking a bit shabbier towards one end mm. and I asked the guide oh what's down there and they go, oh that's the bit of the university we don't have to go down there don't worry we're gonna go in here look look at this tree Kim Il-sung delivered a lecture underneath this tree it happens all the time um what was they... the
2: craziest mausoleum that you saw
4: I didn't well, or
2: like craziest monument to a dead Korean leader.
4: Uh, well, the craziest one is the one that I didn't get to see, which is the Palace of Friendship, which is about an hour's drive north of Pyongyang. There've been really heavy rains. Um, I went in two thousand nine, uh, and there were really heavy rains that year, and the road was washed out. But the Palace of Friendship is where uh, Kim Il Sung's embalmed, the Eternal President, his embalmed body is still on display. And um, unfor- <laughs> they keep all the presents that have been given over the years by other countries. So in the 60s and 70s they, they were like getting loads of stuff from all over the world, from countries in Africa and and, and Europe and, uh, and Asia but as the communists uh, as the Soviet Union has fallen there aren't that many gifts that they get anymore so it's mostly stuff like stuffed crocodiles from Ghana from like four years ago a and stuff gammon set. Yeah, from... it's, it's really tacky apparently, I was really regretted not seeing it
2: But do you think there's a bigger point here that it's we, something that comes up a lot here, that essentially the reason that this film has been pulled is because none of the theatre chains wanted to show it because they were all scared of yes. cyber terrorism. And how much does that worry you about as 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 a freedom of speech issue?
4: Well, it's a deeply worrying thing. um I don't know what I don't know if the precise details of the threats have been released, but they were clearly very serious to make Sony do this, um, or rather. To make the five largest cinema chains in the US do this, which has meant Sony feels like it should do it. From, That's what I mean. I wonder whether or not they were
2: or whether or not always you would just be super cautious. Like I can see that there's a there's a calculation where even if the threat isn't particularly serious or it is quite yeah. vague, then you think, mm, am I really going to like have my company destroyed and all my uh, you know uh, horrible emails that people have sent f- for the basis of quite a... Apparently mediocre, Seth Rogen, yeah,
4: James Franco. I feel like I feel like we should go back and look through. I, I can't remember any threats like this happening when Team America came out, but I bet there were. It does make and... me more and
2: more believe that the, the South Park guys are, have got great big banking balls. <laughs> yes. Um, but there we go. Uh, on that note, perhaps I'll say thank you very much to Phil and Ian. The Church of England took one small step towards gender equality this week by appointing its first woman bishop, Libby Lane. Uh, Caroline Crampton joins me. She had the pleasure of interviewing. I say
5: Bishop Lane. I like, "What? Did, well, how do you, how does one refer to a bishop?" I'm not sure. I know actually. She's going. She's the Bishop of Southport, so you can call her that. If it's
2: a CV, do you probably just call her Libby, though, don't you? Well, I did do that. Yes. Yeah. When I spoke wow. to her. <laughs> um,
5: uh, so yeah. So tell me a little bit about how uh, how you found her and what this means for the Church of England so this actually has happened very fast by the church of england's standards given that they've they first they ordained the first women priests in 1994 uh libby was one of those in that first sort of class of of women priests um they then over the next 20 years there's been various campaigns by factions within the church saying well we have women priests now but we can't have women bishops. So women are allowed to be priests, but they're not allowed to be in positions of authority. This is ridiculous, and this has been very, very fraught. Lots of very kind of emotive discussion. There was a, a very close vote in 2012 where I think uh, two of the three houses in the General Synod, the church's governing body, approved. So we have women like bishops. the lay house and the clergy. And house. the house of bishops, house of uh, houses of clergy and bishops approved. Yeah. House of laity, which is. Um, Elected members of congregations, mm-hmm. uh, it the motion failed there by six votes. Wow! Um, and so, what was the problem? what's the
2: contention then that some people wouldn't stand for being bished by a woman, and yes. therefore they had no way of opting out of this?
5: That was the feeling. Yes. Yeah. So there, it's actually a strange one in that you've got two very polarized factions. Who find themselves on the same side? So you've got the, uh, the sort of evangelical wing of the Church of England, uh, prefer a very literal interpretation of the Bible in which a woman cannot hold any sort of priestly authority, and then you've got. This the, is the
2: point where I want to invoke my mum, though, because she gets very angry about this. Because some of the first disciples were were women yeah it's
5: it's a theological dispute you know it's but that's their interpretation you've also got the high church anglo-catholic side the sort of traditionalist anglican 19th century loving incense smells and bells smells and bells aspect who feel the same about women having authority in the church so they agree on nothing else apart from the fact that women may not be ideally priests but they've lost that battle but definitely not bishops so that was the those were the two sort of factions united on this one issue um And the attempt by the Church of England was to say, well, the majority of us do want women bishops, but there is still place in the church for those who don't. So this was where they they tried this system of so-called flying bishops, who unfortunately don't have helicopters. I wish they did. Or actual wings. Or wings. The idea being that they are sort of untethered bishop, male bishops. Bishops on the loose. On the loose, who don't have a particular diocese, but who, if a service or a ceremony is required by a congregation they need a bishop for you know a baptism or something like that but they won't have a woman bishop a flying bishop could could land and perform the service for them whatever it was there was a very complicated set of proposals in 2012 that obviously they, they were not enough to get it over the line that was all kind of rethought and redone and then in july this year the synod finally approved the measure for women bishops and it became properly became canon law on the 17th of November, so just over a month ago. Um, And now we have our first woman bishop. I'm not sure anyone expected it to happen quite so quickly, but apparently what happened, there's been a vacancy for the Bishop of Stockport since May. They'd interviewed several male candidates who weren't felt to be right. Then, fortuitously, suddenly women bishops are approved, and Libby Lane, who is a local priest, was felt to be worthy. And there she is. Now she is it.
2: What I'm interested in is, so um, my family are Catholic, and I remember when they first brought in female vicars there were quite a lot of defections to the catholic church from former anglican priests who were pretty unhappy about the whole thing is that going to happen this time is anybody
5: defecting it doesn't feel like it they they were there've been a, a few over the years there's this thing called the Ordinariat, which was a sort of set up by the catholic church as a kind of halfway house For priests who wanted to defend. Oh, don't
2: uh, start me on this, because it's really funny this weird idea in the Catholic Church that we have these two fundamental principles about the priesthood. So, one, you have to be celibate, and two, you have to be male. We're actually kind of okay with compromising on the celibacy thing. Like, that's fine. But no, very strongly about the male
5: thing. Yeah. So, that the ordinaria allowed um, male C of E. Priest who were already married yeah. still to become Catholic—it was so sort of strange. Although,
2: if your wife dies, you're not allowed to remarry. This is, the thing. Ah, this is okay. a thing. This also apparently applies to married um, deacons. You so newer. you have to kind of go like, I, I know this one, but after that, no, 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 more. no
5: more, no more. But no, so it feels that I'm not entirely clear on how the how they managed to achieve this. But the the feeling in 2014, as opposed to 2012, is that the majority of the church is moving in this direction, and the dissenters are going with them even though they don't really agree. Mm. That they've managed to shake down this approach where there's still space for you, even if you don't agree with us. And that was when i and speaking to um, Libby yesterday, that was very much the sense I got from her, is she's very, very reluctant. Now that basically her side has won, she's very, very reluctant to speak ill of anyone who doesn't agree with her existence. Which I have to say, I find hard to take personally. I feel like I, if I were in her position, I would... I would want to feel a little bit smug that I'd got where I was. But because she's no. just more holy than you. She is quite holy. She was very, she was very sort of, I want to work with them. I want them to see that I'm working for everybody, not just the people who agree with me.
2: I, I, yeah, I think it's very interesting how these, how, how quickly these social issues change. Because how quickly we went from civil partnerships and the vicious sort of fight that there was over that to... with the idea that you couldn't call it gay marriage because no one would stand for gay marriage to, you have this year gay marriage became law, it was passed last year so you had the first marriages this year and pretty much everybody was just kind of dealt with that and accepted it so the pace of change on on things like that does seem to be speeding up certainly at least in British society generally, obviously the Catholic Church is still somewhere behind, although the Pope is sorting out Cuba, so you know he's uh, diverting his attention to one thing maybe rather than the other, Um. That, can you tell me anything else about about Libby Lane? About what you know? What her? What, what where does she stand? Kind of in the church's politics? Will you ever have a female first Archbishop of Canterbury? And would that be her? Is that the kind of thing you? Could she be was having? very
5: reluctant to be drawn on this. I did try and and get her to talk about this. She she very much admires what um, Justin Welby as Archbishop of Canterbury has done about sort of picking political issues that the church can safely intervene on. So he's been very vocal about the increased use of food banks, for instance, not least because churches are quite involved in running food banks, but say, you know, challenging the government to say, why do people need food banks? You need to look at why this is. Um, she she talked a lot about social action. And so we we conducted the interview at the YMCA hostel in Crewe, where she was there to sort of inspect the the work's been help, done to help vulnerable people who are having to live in the hostel because they can't get their benefits sorted out or whatever it was. So she seems to see that very much as how the church works in the 21st century, is finding people in need and whether they're believers or not and trying to help them. But she wasn't willing to talk about whether she would sort of seek to progress that at higher levels. I suppose she is already a bit of a politician in that in that sense.
2: Well Anna, I imagine that there's gonna be a lot of attention on her. Uh, she might decide that, you know, it's actually quite I think there's always a thing, isn't there, with the first female pioneers in particular fields. So many expectations and hopes are heaped on that and they're sort of seen as being the standard bearer. Like the sort of weird analogous of, of the um the female comedian on the panel show. If she something goes wrong with her bishopric, then that would be it well we tried female bishops and we had one and two and she was rubbish. and I think that weighs quite heavily on people.
5: Yes and she's very aware of that. She in yesterday her sort of first official day uh, in the public eye she was already talking about the amount of scrutiny that she'd been under. I saw her doing a fairly combative broadcast interview I think with ITV where she they were pressing her on issues of same-sex marriage and same-sex marriage for priests and all this kind of stuff and she was very All the questions were couched in terms of, as the first woman bishop, what do you think of? Which is clearly going to be a feature. But her line on that was, I might be the only one for now, but I'm not going to be the only one for long. That there are, I think, three major diocesan vacancies next year. And I think the church intends to try and fill at least one of them. With another woman bishop you know she's not she's not going to be on her own for long
2: but i think that's really interesting because that's one of the places that kind of i think feminism particularly is very hard on women is that there's some expectation that because she's a pioneer she should be able to change everything and then all those guys who are already male bishops get to kind of be like hey i'm just one of like a hundred male bishops Mm. why does anyone care what i think and there the onus isn't there isn't that sense of betrayal if they don't then support other progressive causes because they're not seen to have benefited from progressivism themselves
5: i think that's partly why the church of England has done a smart thing by making her the first one, because she wasn't on the front line of the uh, campaign for women bishops. Mm. She was obviously in favour of it, and she described herself as a kind of low-key campaigner. In that, you know, she talk to her congregation about it and so. On, but she was never petitioning the synod or anything like that so they haven't picked a revolutionary as their first they've picked someone a kind of safe pair of hands almost someone who she's from the local area where she's going to be bishop of she's very much a kind of um a safe candidate for that to try and mitigate that effect i think
2: well more in uh, our new feature bishop watch uh, in the <laughs> new year thank you very much caroline You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn.
4: There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm
0: Jason Pack.
5: And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences,
2: as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs.
0: All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did?
2: The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided.
0: How did we get here? The modern
2: version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix
4: it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community...
3: Search Disorder wherever
0: you get your podcasts.